If you would love to create a transformational and successful coaching business, but you don't know where to start or how to make this a full-time career, then my new certification program, Influential Coach, is for you. There is no other four-month live online mastermind like this. I'm going all in, guns blazing on this one with you to skyrocket your coaching career and personal brand online. You will learn the frameworks I personally use for rapid transformational coaching so you can support your clients to achieve their dreams no matter where they are in life. You will also learn how to authentically brand and market yourself as a coach so you can stand out from the rest and build a career of freedom and fulfillment. Spots are limited and this is an application only program. So if you're serious about finally committing to building a successful career in transformational coaching, then head over to imjoelbrown.com slash coach and apply today. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Addicted to Success podcast. I'm your host, Joel Brown, and I am super excited today to introduce to you our amazing guest. His name is Joe Foster. Now, you may be familiar with his brand, with his business. It is a world-class, world-famous brand. It is called Reebok. And Joe recently has launched his book, Shoemaker. I'll tell you what, there's so much wisdom that is instilled within Joe. And Joe, I cannot wait for you to share this with the Addicted to Success audience today. So welcome to the A2S podcast. Thank you for the invitation, Joe. It's uh... But it's something I look forward to writing the book and telling people the real true story about the origins of Reebok. Wonderful stuff. Yeah. So, so let's break that down real quick because I know obviously Reebok is a, a big worldwide uh, brand. And I can imagine that you've gone through some struggles along the way. But before we hit, hit into the real juicy, meaty part, just if you could break it down in a nutshell, in a quick 30 seconds to a minute. What was the start? Like, where did this, would this start with you for, for Reebok? Uh, the start, I think, is really from my grandfather. He yeah. made a very successful business. His sons, my father and uncle, they didn't, they didn't carry on that. They somehow lost it. And Jeff and myself, we saw a failing company when we came to it. So we left the company and set up our own company. Originally Mercury, but we became Reebok. Yes, yes, I heard about this. It, it is funny when you've got this idea in your head, and I know what it's like to have a big vision for the future, and you get fixated like, oh, we're, you know, we're going to make it like this, it's going to sound like that, and then you hit this roadblock. I think that it's almost like this blessing in disguise when you end up having to change it to something else and it, and it takes off. Do you feel like you've had maybe two to three moments where you were going to take your business or brand in one way and you had this, this awesome miracle or something unfold, which ended up being an even better thing for Reebok or for you? I, I think what really happens when, as far as Jeff and I were concerned, and myself in particular, Jeff loved to be in the factory. He just liked making the shoes and, and he wanted me to do everything else. So I did everything else, which a lot of the designing and all the marketing and sales and did all the traveling. Um, what it was, of course, is that our grandfather in 1895 you know, he is credited with inventing, or at least pioneering, the spike running shoe. And that sort of is, becomes the DNA that we grew up with. And even though uh, his sons, uh, my father and uncle, even though they didn't seem to have that spirit, that uh, energy, they just sort of continued with the business. But 
when we, uh, when Jeff and I came came to the business, <clears throat> we we sort of saw a failing business. I, the story is, of course, that uh, we grew up during World War Two, and we were in Boy Scouts, which does give you a bit of some energy. You, you do some pioneering, you do different things. Uh, there were no lights on, it was all blackout. But you, know, you don't think that that's anything different when you're a youngster. You know, well, everybody grows up like this, this is fine. <clears throat> so when the lights came on again in 1945, it was a little bit different. But you know, Jeff joined the business before I did in 1948. I didn't join until 1952. I did a little longer uh, at college. Um, I did engineering at college, but and that did that did me well when we came to build our own factory. It was good to do that. But the, <clears throat> when we went in 1953 into the do national service, it took us away from that comfort zone. You know, mother mother made breakfast. They did our washing. Every, everything was there, and we just backwards and forwards from doing work. Go away for two years, and you learn something in uh, in the forces. It's self self sufficient survival, the way to work things in life. And, and you begin to see life a little differently. And so when we came back after two years, we're looking at a company and they're making the same shoes that grandfather made way back in the thirties. Well, even beyond that, <clears throat> but grandfather, not many people know how successful he was. I mean, he was supplying Olympic athletes uh, in, in the first uh, decade between 1900 and 1910. Second decade, of course, World War I took them away. Army boots, you name it, they were having to do that. By the time 1920 came along, he was supplying all the athletes at the Antwerp Olympic Games. And between, in the 20s, he, he supplied so many teams, the American team, Germans, with his, with his track spikes. And uh, he, <clears throat> I don't know if you remember the film Chariots of Fire. Yes, Chari I do. Yes, yeah. that's a classic. Well, that immortalized three athletes. Um, it was uh, Eric Liddell, Lloyd Burley, and the other one was Harold Abrahams. And they all won gold medals, and that's why they were in the film. But they were supplied by my grandfather, Joe Foss. He made the shoes for them. So yeah. at that time, he was number one, no question. And he knew how to influence, which is to give the shoes to the top people and you influence the business. And that's how other people would buy your shoes. But unfortunately, my father and uncle, all that they did was uh, continue the business. But you know, you, you need to drive a business forward. It, it can't plateau. It, it will go down if you don't drive it forward. And they didn't do that. So when Jeff and I, as I say, we went through our young days as, as kids on the street and then joined the company and then went to do national service and came back. We saw this company was failing. Jeff had been in Germany. He had seen Adidas, he'd seen Puma, and he came back, when he came back, he's trying to take, say to father, look, look, this is what they're doing. And of course, when I came back, I was pushing and said, we've got to change. You've got to do marketing. They didn't do any marketing. They had no plan. But, uh, like the Adidas story, where Adi Dassler and Rudy Dassler didn't get on. They feuded with each other. So Rudy, he left and set up Puma. Well, the same applied to my father and uncle. They would fight more than they would talk. And in fact, we had to, we had to pull them apart on more than one occasion because <laughs> they just didn't get on together at all. And you know, we look at this and think, how are we going to build 
a company uh, out of this. And I'd say to my father, look, you know, we've got to do something. We've got to make changes. And all he would say to me is, look, when, when your Uncle Bill's gone and I'm gone, the company will be yours. You can do what you like. And I said, Dad, firstly, we don't want you to go. But secondly, this business will be gone long before you. There's no question of that unless we change. Yeah. And uh, we, could, we tried to persuade Father for three years. And it was 1958. We decided enough's enough. And Jeff and myself, we left. Previous to that, we'd done, we'd done to, went to college to evening classes, to, to college, to learn more about shoemaking. That's all we knew was how to make running shoes and what we, what we did in the factory. And I think that was really good for us because we made a lot of, uh, a lot of friends. We, we got a lot of advice. We, we were in the trade then, so we had people to help us. So when we did leave, we could buy second-hand machinery. And I mean, second-hand machinery in those days is for nothing. The shoe industry, once, once the technology had moved on a bit, the old uh, machinery, it was cheap. And let's face it, we were used to old machinery. Because that's all J.D. Bufosler had was old machinery. <clears throat> so even our old machinery was newer than they had. So we had a small business and we called it Mercury Sports Footwear. Okay, Mercury Sports Footwear, we were quite happy with that. Good name. 18 months after being in business, the accountant said, Joe, you better register that name because you're doing quite well and you're making a bit of money. And uh, if somebody else sees that and starts to make shoes with the name Mercury, you're going to have a lot of difficulty stopping them doing it if you don't register. So, uh, okay. Of course, very naive. Well, what do we do? Well, you have to, you have to go and see an agent and he will uh, check this with the register. Uh, of business names, and uh, you go from there. Of course, the, red, the, red, the, the agent came back and said, I'm sorry, Mercury is already pre-registered by, I think it's British Shoe Corporation, big shoemaking people. And, and he said, they will, they will sell it to you because they're not using it. They've registered it, they're not using it. And they'll, they'll let you have it for a thousand pounds. Well, a thousand pounds. You know, we were barely sort of floating Never mind, find a thousand pounds or something. That's probably something like a hundred thousand pounds today. It was for us, it was impossible. So the agent said, Well, look, you're gonna to have to change your name. So bring me 10 names. Don't bring me one because we have to test these with the register. And there's no use testing one at a time. We need to go in and then you can get your name. So we sat down and we came up with, yeah, at least 10 names uh, birds, animals, but. Uh, in 1943, during the war, I was eight years old. And in a race, which I won, uh, the prize was, of all things, a dictionary, a Webster's Dictionary, which is an American dictionary. Why I would get an American dictionary during the war in 1943, I don't know. But anyway, I still had that dictionary. And I thought, mm, <clears throat> let me have a look through this. I, I like the letter R. I thought it was a strong beginning to any, any word. So I'm looking through the R section, and, of course, R-E, pretty quick, pretty soon, I came across Reebok. I don't even be okay. Small South African gazelle. Gazelle. Well, we're in running shoes. Gazelle, that sounds just about right. Reebok, easy, two syllables, strong. I put this at the top of the list. 
went back to the agent and uh, I said, look, I've got 10 names here, but this is the one we want. We've got to be in love with this. It's got to be our passion. You know, it's, it's got to be something that we really want, want to do. And as it happened, it came back there. The, the, it came back, the, the only name that really is free to register is Reebok. Oh, brilliant. Fantastic. But the registrar said, yes, but it's got to go in part B of the register. And again, he said, what's part B of the register? And he said, well, if somebody comes to us and say, we're making running shoes out of Reebok skin, we can't stop them. Oh, however, 20 years later, the registrar came back to us and said, you've now been moved to part A of the register because everybody knows now that Reebok is a shoe. It's not an animal. Yes. So that's how we became Reebok. Wow. Wow. There's so much in this, Joey. I love this. There's, there's quite a few things we can unpack. I would love to hear from you. What are some key principles that you live by when it comes to your mindset and what you focus on with this brand, with this business to think like a billionaire, you know, cause we have a lot of millionaire, multimillionaires that listen to this podcast. We have a lot of entrepreneurs, people that are aspiring to build their businesses and scale. How does a billionaire minded person think? What are some principles? Well, I can only say that when, uh, when Jeff and I started the business, I was 23 years old and Jeff was 25. Uh, we'd done national service. We knew, we knew our way around a bit. And, uh, you know, we were undefeatable. What was it? You know, what could go wrong? Nothing. You know, you're young enough. It doesn't matter if you fail because you don't have that in your brain. You know, things go wrong, but you go again. You know, and it's, it's having the, uh, our, our desire was to make a successful business, was to grow, was to do something that grandfather had started all, the, all those years back and that had sort of slipped away from the jade with Foster company. So we were there, just let's go for it. And, and I think, uh, I don't think that you know anything about being a millionaire or being rich. I don't think that, that money at that point or, or any point, if you try to build a brand, it is just the success of the brand. You know, success to me was uh, how far can we take this brand? And you, you don't even really have that as a measure. It's the next step. It's a step all the time. And uh, yes, we, we did the things that we said J.D. Foster should do. We had marketing. We, we did the sales. But I, I used to go out and uh, call on the sports stores in, in the UK. And I'm going out and I bring my bag with me and the shoes and say, look, I'm, I'm Reebok. Um, and the store, the guy in the store would say, Reebok? Who? Well, look, we running shoes, we've got this. And they'd say, well, it looked very nice, that's fine. And they say, but look, I've got Adidas, I've got Dunlop. Why do I need Reebok? And that, that in itself was a question that I got from a number of retailers. Some would buy my product, some would be happy to. Do it. But a lot in those early days would say, why do I need Reebok? And that, that's what made me think, well, and I would think, well, you don't really, because yes, you've got Adidas on your shelf, you've got Dunlop on your shelf, you've got the shelves are pretty full, you know, <laughs> there's no space there. Um, I had to make space. So why was the big question? 
And I did realize that I'm going around selling to retailers and I should be really selling my shoes to the athlete. That's the person who needed, you know, they were the ones that were going to buy my product. The, the retailer was there as a, as a resource, as somewhere in between that, that would make them available. Uh, but in the UK, we had the Amateur Athletics Association, the three A's, and they had a handbook. And in that handbook were about three or 400 clubs affiliated to the three A's. And in that handbook, there was the name and address of every secretary of every club. Well, wow. there we go. It was just a matter of writing letters and when you put in the letter. And I offered them a 15% discount from retail. And I said, if anybody wants to become an agent, they can have that 15% or you can just use it for club funds. I got a lot of agents and I sold a lot of shoes that way. And uh, it, did, it did drive the retail business. And a lot of them would phone me up and say, look, uh, we, we, we believe you're selling direct to uh, clubs. Look, if you, sell, if you stop doing that, we'll stop your product. I said, well, you're a bit late. You know, we already now have a business. I'm quite willing to supply you. And I'll supply you at wholesale price. We only give a small discount to clubs, which you would probably give as well. I said, but uh, you can have it wholesale, but I'm not stopping what we're doing now, and that's selling direct to the, the clubs. Oh, and I would say that 60 70% of them started to stock our shoes. So, you know, it, it was getting through to, uh, um, let me say, to our customer. And, and that, what that did, I, I think it raised the bar for our, our brand. Our brand suddenly became a desirable brand. We're, we're just not another name on a shoe, um, a company in Northampton called Kingswell were making shoes, but they were just making shoes. Uh, Clarks, uh, in their day, started to make uh, training shoes, but Clarks, they were not perceived as a sports company. You know, they were perceived as a street company. So we raised our game, and the perception of Reebok was a leading brand with innovative ideas. But uh, for me, we had, we had lost the opportunity to go into football the, re the reason for that is that by the time we set up our company, 1958, Adidas had already come in and had already taken that role. <clears throat> Even though way back in the 1920s, and we do have a letterhead of J.W. Foster's, he was supplying 96 clubs, football clubs, rugby clubs, with training shoes and boots. <clears throat> and... You can name Manchester United, Manchester City, Everton, Liverpool, wow. Arsenal, all the teams that we know as premiership players today, they were yeah. supplying. And, and we have it in print. We've actually, uh, <clears throat> we've actually reprinted it so that uh, people can see just how brilliant uh, grandfather was. But I'm saying by, by 1958, we'd lost the opportunity. We, that would have been too expensive, too big to get into, uh, into soccer. So for me, it was, well, the big place to be is America because athletics and running, every university, every college had a coach and you could actually go to university if you had abilities as an athlete. So <clears throat> I, I've got to get to America. This is where the big market is. And in 1968, courtesy of the Board of Trade in the UK, they wanted uh, sports companies to export and they were willing to pay for a, a stand 
pay for the air first, return air first, and half of hotel bills to go to the American NSGA show, the National Sporting Goods Association of America, to go there <clears throat> and try to do exports. 1968 was my first attempt. I went there. Yeah, the, lots of people liked the shoes. That was good, yes. And it's like, well, where, where do I get your shoes? I'm saying England. England, yeah, is that New England? No, no, it's not New England. It's England, <laughs> across the water. <laughs> oh. <laughs> um, they didn't like that idea. The Americans have so much uh, availability on their doorstep. that <laughs> they, they don't want the effort of trying to import things and go through customs and all that. No. So, uh, <clears throat> so the response was, well, you know, when you get a distribution over here, we'd love to try your product. And, you know, the Americans are very open to that. More, more than the British was. You know, I got that British, why do I need your shoe? Yeah. No, the Americans are not like that. You know, they'd give it a try. But uh, our luck was in because what happened is that during the 70s, 1968, we just my, my first attempt, but all during the 70s, running took off in America. Running became a craze, absolutely. And this was driven by a magazine, Runner's World. And, and Runner's World... I, Runner's World and Nike almost grew at the same time because uh, Runner's World were just, just as Bible, everybody read it, and Nike were there in America, and they grew tremendously at that point, just as running grew. Um, and Bob Anderson, who uh, was the publisher of uh, Runner's World, I got to know him quite well. He rated shoes. What they did, they, they were so... I don't know whether it's arrogant or what, but they, they knew that they had big influence to, to the market. And so they started rating shoes. So if you were a number one, all of a sudden, the demand for that product was just out of this world. In fact, you couldn't supply. It was usually Nike who became number one. Um, and by the time they managed to get enough product, because they were importing from uh, Japan, uh, they just couldn't get it. It took six months to get this onto the shelves because everybody demanded that shoe. And by the time they got it on the shelves, three months later, everybody's thinking, well, what's the next number one? And so the retailers are left with a lot of product. Uh, this, this lasted about two or three years. And somebody persuaded Bob Anderson, or Bob Anderson sort of mm, figured it out himself. No, we can't keep doing this. So they changed this to a, a star rating. And five star, that was the best one. And then you would go down and you got your star ratings. That I knew was our opportunity. Yeah. Running, wow, we're here. We're a running company. What we need now is a five-star shoe. 1978, uh, I designed the Aztec. And Aztec was designed to be a five-star shoe. In fact, we called it the gold range. Aztec was our training shoe. We had Midas. Again, Midas gold. Uh, Midas was the... Uh, that was a racing shoe, a road racing shoe. And we had Inca. Inca was a spike track shoe. And we did, we did fabulous at the Edmonton uh, Commonwealth Games in 1978. We got a lot of gold medals. So by February of uh, 1979, when the NSJ show was on again, <clears throat> and it's on in Chicago, and Chicago in February is cold. So cold. It's incredible. Yeah, tell me about it. <laughs> <laughs> this was our chance. So a lot of people looked at our shoes, thought they were brilliant, um, came out, came out, wanted to order 25,000 pairs. Ah, 
well, our factory, that was about six months for our factory at the time. Okay, I knew that if we got a five-star shoe, we'd have to look around for added production and barter. Barter were quite happy. I'd already got them on board that they would make shoes for us. But also, um, they, they wanted a better price. And I knew that was also coming up because now shoe production was going to the Far East. And we, we could get the product less than half the price from the Far East. <clears throat> so those two those are two things we had to do. We had to go to Far East if we got a five-star shoe. Yes. Well, Fireman also came along. He had a, a small distribution, an outdoor goods distribution, Boston Camping it was. So he was in Boston and he had this small, uh, and he said he'd, he'd also love to be our distributor. <clears throat> well, I thought Kmart wouldn't be a distributor. Kmart would just be exposure, 25,000 birds. Uh, and if we managed to, earn the money that they would want for the square footage that we would have in those stores, they might order again. <laughs> but yeah. I wanted a distributor. I wanted somebody to work with. And I met Paul at the NSGA show, and we got on well. We really got on well together. <clears throat> but Paul said, I'd love to do this, but we need a five-star shoe. I said, look, Aztec, this is it. This is going to be five stars. And he said, can you guarantee that? Well, <laughs> no, but I'll tell you something. It's got a really good shot. Okay. So <clears throat> it took till August until the, uh, till, till the shoe edition came out of Runner's World. <coughs> and uh, it's very well, it was midday for me, but I phoned Paul about 7 a.m. for him in Boston. Uh, I think I woke him up and said, Paul, get down to the kiosk and see if you can pick up a Runner's World. It should be out today. An hour later. He came back, said, Joe, Aztec, you got five stars. Brilliant. Uh, that was yeah. it. We got the hook. We got the key. He said, but not only that, your other two shoes, Midas and Inca, also got five stars. So we had three five-star shoes. Wow. That was our entry. That was the difference. That was the hook. And once we got that, it wasn't easy. A lot of work has to be done. How do you finance it? How do you get those cheaper shoes, the volumes? All those were issues that had to be addressed. And we did. Yeah. And the worst part about that is that uh, just at that time, my brother became ill. And uh, he was to die very quickly. He had cancer of the stomach. Um, and, and so that really put not a lot of pressure on the factory. And I, I knew our factory was only small. And we're having to go to Barter, but Jeff would have gone to Barter to take the patterns down there and work with them to get production. Yeah. He would have probably also had to go out to the Far East to work with the factories in the Far East to get them to do production. But uh, <clears throat> I had to do the Far East trip, and I, and I got other people to look after the factory. And, and so we, we got through that period, but, uh, and, and sales were going tremendously in America. But then we had a guy in Los Angeles, a tech rep. And this tech rep is called Arnold Martinez. And I don't know if you know Arnold Martinez or have heard of him, but uh, he's quite a genius. Well, you've heard of UG. Mm. Yes? UG. Yeah. The, yeah, yeah. Uh, Brian, uh, Brian, who initially was... That's uh, right, yeah. Yeah, from Australia. Yeah, we had him on the podcast. That's right. Well, yeah. Arnold... Arnold joined the company 
and he took uh, up to a billion dollars in America. So, oh, it, that was the guy. Okay. Yes. But Arnold is a tech rep down there in, uh, in California, in Los Angeles. And his wife, Frankie, she's going to these aerobic classes. And he's saying, what the hell is that? Aerobic classes. And, and she's coming back with her girlfriends and they're full of it. Brilliant. And he said, well, what is it? Well, it, it is actually exercise to music. Okay. <laughs> All right. I mean, I must have a look at this one. So the next, uh, the next time we were going to the, uh, the class, he went. And uh, he, uh, he's looking at it and he sees the instructors wearing running shoes. Half the class were either wearing running shoes or plimsolls. And the rest, not wearing the bare feet. He had a light bulb moment at that point and said, why don't we, uh, thinking, why, why don't we make shoes of glove leather, uh, nice, comfortable, so, so they love to be, with, with a nice cushioned sole, which is more or less running shoe technology, not much different. Um, but I didn't know at the time when he, when he talked about glove leather. Had I known then, I may have uh, said something. <laughs> anyway, he went up to Paul Feynman. Paul Feynman said, Paul, we've got this, this aerobics starting, it's looking really good down in uh, Los Angeles. And Paul said, so what do you want? I said, well, I want to get some shoes. Why don't we make some shoes for this? Paul said, look, Arnold, no. We're doing tremendous business here with, uh, with running. We're growing. It's great. You know, why do we want to play around with a few shoes for some women dancing in, uh, in Los Angeles? <clears throat> But Arnold didn't take that for no. He, he wouldn't take that. He went round the back door and went in to see the production people. <clears throat> and he was very persuasive. And he said, why don't, um, um, would you make me 200 pairs of, with these shoes? Glove leather gave them the idea and they made him 200 pairs of shoes. He delivered them down into Los Angeles, gave them to the instructors and some in the class. And that was it. Reebok suddenly became a fitness shoe company. We were known in, in the running uh, scene, as it were, we were known. But really for your average person in America, nobody knew Reebok. They knew Nike, <clears throat> they knew Adidas, but they knew them as male, sweaty. Reebok is nice, beautiful, soft, cushioned, woman's shoe, incredible. And being down there, it was picked up by everybody, picked up by the A-list stars, um, we had uh, Sigourney Weaver wearing uh, high tops, picking up uh, her Emmy Award. And, and we had Jane Fonda. Jane Fonda was doing the uh, uh, videos in, in Reebok. And Reebok didn't have to pay. <laughs> it wasn't, in those days, it was, they were so happy. It, it she, was huge. she was huge yeah. at that time as well. She was everywhere. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, all of a sudden, this, this, is, this is the visibility that you need as a brand. And, and that, yeah. it, it took three or four years to really become international. <clears throat> but Reebok became this aerobic brand. Yeah. And Nike, New Balance, Adidas, they all stood back. No, it's just a phase. It's nothing. But it took Reebok from $9 million to $30 million to $90 million to $300 million, and then $900 million in successive years. 
Wow. And <clears throat> the problem that brings is, where do you get the production from? Yeah, you got a scale. Uh, we were very lucky because at the time, Nike was just hitting a bit of a wall. They had lots of stuff on order and the sales were just going down at that time. Everybody, every company seems to do that. So a bit more luck as well yeah. because we could fill those factories in the Far East. We could fill them with, with aerobics. So the timing is, is so important and, and that's where your luck is. But by the time I retired from yeah. the company in 1989, we were doing $3.8 billion dollars. We'd overtaken Adidas. We'd overtaken Nike. And we were number one global yeah. sports uh, footwear manufacturer. Wow. So, and by that time, all I was doing, I'd put on all the distribution globally. I'd been down in yeah. Australia. <laughs> I put yeah, the, nice. uh, the Hendersons on, the, the Handlers, sorry, the Handlers. They, they had started doing a good job. Um, so uh, I, I was just jumping on an airplane, traveling arriving, being picked up by a limousine, going to the best hotels, uh, sitting down and having some very special dinners and conversations. But yeah. for me then, well, the excitement had gone in terms of um, the, I suppose, the challenge. I, I, I'd, been, I'd been growing up with a challenge for 20-something years. In fact, it was 31 years by the time I did decide to move out. But we went through some fantastic periods. Uh, we... Uh, a friend of ours, well, he became a friend, but he, he was down in Los Angeles, Wendell Niles. He, uh, he knew everybody uh, in, in the film industry, and he got us into uh, Monte Carlo, into the Monte Carlo Pro Celebrity Tennis Tournaments. And we, we would have, every year, we would have 15, 20 stars coming in. Uh, Frank Sinatra came in. A lot of the big stars came just to enjoy uh, Monte Carlo. And we had a lot of top tennis players, and, and so that was really incredible. Meeting all these people was, was fantastic. And for about two or three years, I, I, I spent my time enjoying that side of life. But with Reebok, the challenge was over. And I, I decided it was probably time to step back. But it's a bit like, and I did, I did, I retired out of the company, but a bit like the Eagles and Hotel California. You can check out, but you can never leave. <laughs> And so I was <laughs> continually draw, drawn back into the company. And I, I still have that enthusiasm for the company even today. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But I decided I'd better get it down into a book before the mind goes completely. Great, great. Idea. I love this. So, Joe, and, and I just want to say, this is a very special podcast episode, okay? And, cool. and the, one of the reasons being is, I mean, I love, I love what you've shared, amazing stuff. Another reason is that, Sometimes when we have guests on, actually most of the time, they'll share like, you know, tip number one, strategy this, principle that. I got so much from you sharing the story and the journey, right? Because a lot of people see the glory, but they don't hear the story, right? right. And so you sharing this, that there were so many lessons that came out of that. And, I, and if I was to kind of pull it apart, the first thing you said, and this is for the listeners too, just to really like get these notes here is that it's about just forging forward, right? Like being relentless in your pursuit and, and there is no failure. You just keep learning less and less and keep going. I remember somebody recently saying to me, if you knew for sure that all you needed was 10,000 no's in order to have a billion dollars, would you do it? 
And it was such a profound question because like, wow, like I, if it, most people would say yes, because it's like, well, if I get used to no, but I also know on the side of it, at some point there'll be a yes, there's going to be so much more that I haven't even experienced yet. Right. So with right. you, that's, that's like such a big part of your journey. But what I also love about what you did from what you shared about you and your brother really working together is that you understood that you were like the visionary and your brother was like the integrator and you really played your part so well with strength for strength. You also, in that, uh, got really resourceful. You were willing to go and you were willing to go and look for the agents and look for the, the key people of influence to be able to connect with. You really moved close to the heartbeat of what was going on in order to be able to really bring what you believe was this incredible dream to life. And I love that you did that, man. It's, it's just so cool to hear it. And, and you did it in such an awesome way that now you get to share as your wisdom. There's so many young entrepreneurs that are probably hearing this. And I challenge you right now, and I'm sure Joe would too, is like, hold yourself to that higher ground and get vision focused. Before we wrap up this interview here, is there any last points that you'd like to drop in on uh, that you feel like anybody that's aspiring should really get their head around to keep it real when it comes to entrepreneurship? I think when coming back to saying, you know, so many knows, uh, my first trip to America was 1968. And I went every year. And I didn't get my distributor till 1979. That's 11 years. In wow. that time, I had at least six failures, at least six attempts with different people to, to make it. And we didn't make it. It yeah. took that 11 years, took a lot of failures, a lot of no's, as you were saying, to get there. But it, I think you've got to have the vision that you know, no is not an answer. No is only just a little hiccup on the way. No is something to get around. No is another problem. But another problem means you're learning something else. You're learning more. Every time, we had a lot of problems growing up a lot. But problems, you've got to look at them really as a learning curve, as an advantage. You've got to say, well, if that's come along, that's a problem. What, what are we doing wrong? And how can we turn this around to take to our advantage? And more often than not, we found that it get, made us determined to do it, but we had to do it a bit differently. So we looked around. The, the retailers won't accept me at first, so I had to look, how do I get to my customer? And it gives you a different vision. It helps you, in fact, to achieve. If you don't have any no's, I, I don't know anybody can achieve without those sorts of no's and those failures. So <clears throat> if you're a budding entrepreneur, you've got to be young. You have to be young. Jeff and I were young. We were indestructible. And you keep that principle. And if you're young, you, you, you can go in there. When, really, it, it, entrepreneur, it's, it's another name for a risk taker. Because, you know, if, it, if it's certain, everybody will do it. No, you have to take that risk. You, you have to push through that, that barrier, through, through the fog, the smoke, or whatever it is. You have to say, what's the other side? And you have to be willing to take a deep breath and go for it. And, and I think every entrepreneur... Anybody who wants to get anywhere will face that as a problem. Because if you ask questions, you ask somebody for advice, should I do this? More often than not, they'll be very cautious. People ask me, and I say, just go for it. Yeah. Just, just go for it. Because you'll only regret it if you don't. And, and if you fail, so what? Get up. Go on again. Yes. Yeah. It's, uh, nobody's going to kill you for it. You know, but you'll kill yourself if you don't do what you think 
I must try this. I must do it. So anybody who has a feeling or an ambition, and today, I, we didn't have any computers. We didn't have mobile phones. Yeah, I was totally in the dark when I when I got onto an airplane and went somewhere. I had to get to a hotel, and even the hotel, you had to use the reception. You couldn't pick up the phone and dial anybody. You just had to use the reception, and they would they would try and get you a connection. Quite often, it wouldn't work, and you, you'd wait an hour or two um, before you could get a connection. Sometimes I had to wait a day. You know, they'd say, I can't get through today. I can get you through tomorrow. And I'd say, I'm sorry. I'll be on my way tomorrow. I won't be here. So, you know, you're playing everything as, look, I'm in control. I don't need anybody else. I've got to do this. I can't find anybody else. I've got to know what I'm doing is right. And even if it's wrong, you can, you, you've got to be willing to change your mind. But, but you've got to do it. You know, it's got to be you. You can't just sit there and hesitate. So, uh, and anybody who's a youngster, just give it a try. Don't worry. I love this, Joe. Wow. The amazing wisdom. It, it's like, it sounds like you were practicing learning to trust yourself, your decisions that you made. You kept your eye focused on the vision. Your, your heart was focused on the vision too. I love this. So Joe, your book, you've got it out now. People are able to purchase this. If you're listening right now, get your yeah. hands on it. I know that we, you and I are just literally scratching the tip of the iceberg of what's in this book. And there's so much uh, wisdom and gems in this book. It, you've, you've compounded decades and decades and decades of wisdom into literally days of reading or even a day of reading in this book. So you'd be borderline crazy if you don't pick this, this book up. So make sure you get your hands on it. Uh, where else can we see you online, uh, Joe? I think we're on uh, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Yep. All the big stuff. And well. On LinkedIn, LinkedIn, we're, we're big on LinkedIn. <laughs> hey, 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 awesome stuff. Yeah. So if you're listening right now, make sure you connect with Joe, get his book. Joe, be, before we wrap up this interview, I have one last question for you. Okay. And this question is, if you were to de deliver your last 30-second speech, right, just a quick 30 seconds, what would your parting advice be? Enjoy life. Have fun, fun, and fun. Those are three most important aspects of a business. Have fun. Oh, man, I love that. That's awesome.